Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you are listening to The Schwepp, The Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. Episode 67, An Erudite Esotericist, Introducing Plutarch of Geronea. There are a number of ways in which great esoteric thinkers can be erased from history. Take the case of Jakob Böhme, one of the single most crucial Christian thinkers of the Reformation era, whose doctrines fundamentally influenced the course of the intellectual history of Christendom across Europe and even in the Americas, all but forgotten in mainstream intellectual history. This is because he's been largely written out of history, although this is changing now under the weight of all the amazing scholarship on Böhme. So some thinkers simply disappear or are disappeared. Others are too blatantly important to disappear, like Plato. Although until recently, Plato too was relegated to a pretty humble position in the intellectual history of the West, considering the fact that he is maybe the single most important thinker for said history, with really no competition for the crown. Therefore, Plato has not been disappeared, he's been denatured. He's been made into a sort of caricature rationalist in the mold of Immanuel Kant. Even discussing the elements of the esoteric in Plato's thought will get you blank stares in most philosophy departments today. A lot of the feedback we've received at the podcast on our Plato episodes testifies to this. People's minds have been blown that the historical Plato was so different from the Plato they learned about in their introduction to philosophy class. But it's not as though we've unearthed any secret Platonic texts or anything like that. We've just pointed out the obvious elements of the esoteric which run through Plato's work and which are systematically ignored in a lot of mainstream interpretations. So, some authors can be interpreted so ahistorically that the image which persists has almost no connection to the historical reality. But, with Plutarch, we have a delightful exception to this rule of exclusion. He's neither disappeared nor overtly sanitized. Everyone agrees that Plutarch's work has been crucially influential, and everyone agrees that he held some rather, well, odd ideas. And it turns out that these ideas, and the rhetorics with which Plutarch surrounds them, are prime esotericism. You can't overstate the importance of Plutarch as an author. His writings were an instant classic in his own day, as far as we can tell, and his fame and influence never really died out. Both Christians and traditionally-minded uh, religious intellectuals of late antiquity quoted him. He was avidly translated into Arabic and absorbed into the Islamic world, thus permeating the broader West of the first millennium and beyond. He was read by the Cappadocian Fathers, whom we'll be discussing in the podcast, and later by East Roman monks of the High Middle Ages. Indeed, he seems to have been read continuously in the Greek-speaking world from his own time until today. Manuscripts of his works were keenly sought after in the Italian Renaissance, immediately translated into Latin, and a host of vernacular dialects, and widely disseminated through Western Europe after. When William Shakespeare needed to do some research for his classical plays like Julius Caesar or Timon of Athens, he grabbed a handy English translation of Amiot's influential French version of Plutarch's Lives. Plutarch's reputation was that of a literary star coupled with a philosopher. Some consider him a great philosopher who could write, and others consider him an okay philosopher but worth reading for his style and subject matter. But everyone read him, and his works are probably the single most important source to later ages for the lore and history of the classical world. 
He gave antiquity to the Middle Ages and the Renaissance to some degree. And importantly for our purposes, he transmits a huge range of crucial esoteric material from antiquity, which would otherwise be lost to us. In this episode, we shall introduce this crucial writer and thinker, emphasizing, of course, his esotericism. While the esoteric Plutarch has never been completely written out of history, as we've said, there is still some digging to do from a 21st century perspective. So we'll start with the very basics of his life and his context, move on to a survey of his writings, which were very extensive, the guy had serious output, and then we'll get on to the esoteric aspects of his thoughts. This episode will only give a, a very brief taster of the esoteric side of Plutarch, because following episodes are going to dig deeper. So who was this Plutarch? Plutarchos was a Greek guy from Boeotia, which is the big sort of semi-island region off the coast of Attica, the region in mainland Greece where we find Athens. He was probably from a prominent and well-off Boeotian family, although we don't know much about them. Now, Plutarch was born around the year 46 CE under the emperor Claudius, so well into the Roman Principate, and he died around the year 125 under Hadrian, or at least 125 would be the, the latest year in which he could have died. He, some people date it to around 120. So we should think about him culturally as being very Greek, but operating in a very Roman context, a pan-Mediterranean intellectual world. And this helps us understand his works, which we'll get to in a minute. Plutarch traveled extensively during his life. He was in Athens in the year 66 to 67 to study philosophy under a certain Ammonius, not the famous Ammonius Saccas, who was the Egyptian teacher of many important thinkers in the third century, like Plotinus, but an earlier, more obscure Ammonius, about whom we don't know very much. And Plutarch visited Rome and Egypt and other places as well, seemingly more or less as a carefree, wealthy tourist, a new class that was arising under the relative peace of the Mediterranean Empire of the Romans. And Plutarch, or rather Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus, became a Roman citizen at some point, or possibly inherited the citizenship from his father, we can't say for sure, but he definitely was a Roman in that sense. But he never left Boeotia in the long run. He seems to have been content to live out his life as an important local intellectual in what was, in this period, a pretty backwaterish part of the world. Listeners may recall that in our episode on Apollonius of Tiana, we talked about the second sophistic period. This was a time roughly from the reign of Nero to around the beginning of the third century when Greece once again became a kind of hotbed of intellectual activity and there were these professional intellectuals, sophists, plying their trade, being clever and witty and erudite for money. While the second sophistic sort of begins during Plutarch's lifetime, it doesn't really seem to have arrived in Boeotia until relatively late. And Plutarch is living in a severely depopulated, economically depressed part of Greece, which has not yet recovered from the Roman takeover, which we'll recall led to a huge number of Greeks being killed or enslaved. So this is Plutarch's Greece, and his hometown of Geronea was perhaps a pretty depressing place to an outsider, but he seems to have loved it. His works are full of antiquarian knowledge of the region and its history. But his works are also full of antiquarian knowledge of Rome and her history. Plutarch, on the face of it, had every reason to hate Rome. And we have many Greek intellectuals, even much later in the empire's history, who still refer to Romans as barbaroi and generally look down on the Romans. But Plutarch is very interested in the Romans, 
has a lot of respect for them and sees their history as being full of virtue, heroism, and even a kind of great destiny which led them to empire. So whether or not we want to consider Plutarch part of the second sophistic, and some scholars do and some scholars don't, we can say that he lived out his, most of his life in a little provincial town, but held lots of important local posts. He was a big fish in a small pond. And interestingly, he was a priest at the important oracular center of Delphi for many years later in his life. This is significant because we're going to have a look at Plutarch's understanding of the ways in which the gods communicate with mankind, especially through oracles, because he was involved in the actual transmission of the oracles of the single most important oracle of ancient Greece, the oracle of Apollo at Delphi, and has fascinating things to tell us about another amazing oracle, that of Trophonius, which was also located in his Boeotian homeland, and which is maybe the most freaky oracle of antiquity. But more on that in a coming episode. Plutarch was also most likely an Eleusinian initiate, and he shows a special respect for initiation and mystic silence, which we will be discussing further in a few minutes. He was married, possibly to a lady called Timoxena, herself the author of a short philosophic work, he had two brothers. One of them, Lamprias, features as a character in many of his dialogues. The other brother is a bit more obscure. He also had a son called Lamprias, whose name is attached to the so-called Catalogue of Lamprias, which is a document from antiquity that we'll get back to in a minute. For lovers of ancient philosophy, there's a few more fascinating family connections here. Plutarch had a nephew called Sextus of Geronea, who was a philosophical instructor to the emperor Antoninus Pius. Note the Roman name Sextus, which shows that Plutarch's family went on to continue this tendency toward assimilation and embracing the Roman order that we find in Plutarch's work. And this Sextus may have been the same person as Sextus Empiricus, a very important skeptical writer of late antiquity who gave us the term empirical. One further relation of Plutarch is especially important to us since he is a key figure in Western esotericism and he never existed. I refer, of course, to Lucius, the narrator of Apuleius's esoteric novel The Metamorphoses, who's described as a kinsman of the great Plutarch. We shall return to The Metamorphoses and Lucius in a few episodes' time. The so-called Catalogue of Lamprius that we mentioned is a library index surviving from antiquity, purporting to be a list of all of Plutarch's works. And the number of titles, 227, is impressive. 78 works listed in the catalog survive, so we have a lot of Plutarch for an antique author. And some works of his survive as well, which are not in the catalog. And there are also some pseudo-Plutarchian works from antiquity. Plutarch's works can in the main be divided into two types, lives, and Moralia. The lives, or parallel lives, are fascinating. Plutarch was a biographer, taking famous names from Greek history, documenting them with lots of wonderful supernatural stories, and a lot of oracular dreams and so on to structure the narratives. And he would pair them with famous Romans, and then draw some conclusions in a final section called the Suncrisis, where a moral lesson is kind of drawn from the lives of these two illustrious men taken together. 
the parallels between the Romans and Greeks are sometimes very strong and sometimes very weak, but that's the structuring format Plutarch chose to use. He didn't invent this parallel scheme, by the way, or really any other aspect of this literary form, but he rocked it hard, and his parallel lives became one of the single most important sources for what famous ancient Romans and Greeks got up to in later years. The lives are written with the object of moral instruction, let us learn from the virtues and failings of the great men of history, but we value them nowadays chiefly for the precious historical details they preserve. The lives also show us Plutarch the antiquarian with an eye for the curious, and he sometimes reminds one of much later antiquarian esotericists like Elias Ashmole or William Stukeley, being concerned with the more curious and esoteric side of history especially with finding the hidden divine hand at work in the great events of the past and interpreting past events in terms of an esoteric transmission of divine wisdom played out according to a divine plan which is hidden from most people. We'll return to this esoteric reading of history in short order. Now, the other big chunk of Plutarch's works are the Moralia or Writings on Morals and Customs. This is a modern title given to basically everything else Plutarch wrote, aside from the parallel lives. These can be dialogues modeled on Plato, but sometimes they're essays, some, some really long, some very short. In all, the Moralia is a sort of huge grab bag of interesting stuff. And it's in the Moralia that we find all of Plutarch's properly esoteric works although we shall be citing the lives quite a bit as well in this and the coming episodes, since they too are full of relevant information which gives us a window into first century middle Platonist esotericism. There are a few miscellaneous works of Plutarch as well, which aren't included in either the lives of the Moralia, and as I mentioned, quite a few pseudo-Plutarchian works survive from antiquity or are attested to have existed, even if they don't survive anymore, which is a testament to, among other things, Plutarch's popularity in later centuries, because no one tries to foist a pseudonymous work on an obscure author with no cred. So in a way, a measure of your popularity and uh, street cred is how many pseudo works are attributed to you in the centuries after you lived. Now, Plutarch was a philosopher and a serious philosopher, or at least he took philosophy seriously, but he wasn't a professional philosopher. And this has led some commentators, both in classical times and later, to underrate his philosophic thought, a bit like often happens to Cicero, who also studied in Athens like Plutarch, and who was professionally a politician and a lawyer rather than a dedicated philosopher. Incidentally, uh, Plutarch wrote a life of Cicero. Plutarch lived in an era, indeed, when we see two sorts of models of philosophy coexisting in the Roman Imperium. One an increasingly professionalized philosophic class made up of teachers and well-off students who didn't have to work for a living. This is philosophy as a way of life. And increasingly, it's an institutionalized way of life. And we have a group made up more of dilettanti, literate gentlemen for whom the philosophical discussions at dinner time are part and parcel of a cultivated upper-class way of life, but who are not about to put on the distinctive philosophic cloak and abandon their classy estates for the dedicated philosophic life. And they may well be involved in politics and other unseemly matters that philosophers do not sully their hands with. Plutarch is our best surviving specimen of this latter group, and his philosophic thought, while serious and meant to be taken seriously, has a certain kind of easygoing quality about it, which stands in stark contrast to the kind of thinkers we're going to be encountering as we move into late antiquity, like Plotinus and his ilk, 
or for that matter, the early Christian zealots, for whom metaphysical truth is a question of life or death importance, and having a sense of humor is very low on the list of philosophic achievements. Roughly speaking, we can call Plutarch a middle Platonist, of course. He knew his Plato in a very deep way, and he sees Plato as the philosophic authority par excellence. Indeed, he's a bit less concerned with Pythagoras than most of his earlier and later Platonist colleagues, though of course he cites the great Pythagoras and includes him in the perennial tradition. He even takes the position that he himself is an academic, something that no other surviving Platonist does in antiquity as far as I'm aware. That is, Plutarch wants to reclaim the title of Plato's academy from the skeptics, the skeptical academy, who had sort of taken it over in the Hellenistic period after the death of the dogmatic old academy. And he wanted to apply it to basically the kind of dogmatic exegesis of Plato that he was doing. Although it should be noted that his easygoing approach often is happy to leave metaphysical questions open, such that he is less rigidly dogmatic and a bit more, quote, academic than most later Platonists would be. So he's in an interesting historical junction as academic skepticism in the academy is, is dying out and a new dogmatic way of reading Plato is, is on the rise, as we've seen with Philo, and as we'll see again with Numenius, Apuleius, and many other Middle Platonists. But he doesn't want to ditch the term academic. He wants to reclaim it for dogmatic reading of Plato. Philosophically, he spends a lot of time attacking the Stoics and Epicureans, the two most important cohesive schools of philosophy in the Roman Empire in his period. He strongly upholds the freedom of the human will as against fatalism, and thus the kind of fatalistic astrology we've been looking at in the podcast. And he upholds the immortality of the soul as against Epicurus and most of the Stoics. He had a very interesting reading of Plato's Timaeus. The creator god, the Demiurge, in fact, did create the universe with a beginning in time. So this reading goes against almost the whole extant Platonist tradition, but would be jumped on by later Christian readers who obviously wanted to use the most influential account of the universe's origins in antiquity, that would be Plato's Timaeus, to help support the biblical account of the creation and give it a bit more philosophic heft. So Plutarch was a minority reader along with a middle Platonist called Atticus, who saw the Timaeus as being a literal account of a kind of universe with a beginning. Plutarch held that the supreme human faculty was noesis, a state of consciousness where the forms are apprehended directly in a unified transrational or hyperrational synoptic sort of mental vision. This valorization of nous and noesis is pretty much a universal among Platonists, though later thinkers from Plotinus onwards and religious philosophers like some Gnostics would posit an even higher state of ineffable consciousness beyond noesis. Another side of Plutarch's thought is its fascinating religious dimension. Plutarch is quite happy to leave the precise nature of the supreme divinity uncertain. Indeed, he's skeptical about the ability of humans to comprehend the divine in its fullness, which is a, a good Platonic tradition. But he's deeply pious, believing that the gods give us direct revelations in various forms and otherwise take care of humanity. The universe is full of daimones who assist the gods by mediating between them and human beings. 
So this overall position, philosophic inquiry coupled with deep religious feeling and respect for tradition, is a hallmark of Middle Platonist esotericism. We've seen a Jewish version of this, of course, in Philo of Alexandria, but the Jews are somewhat of a special case in this context. Nevertheless, Plutarch's philosophic paganism and his dovetailing it with philosophy is um, something very typical of Middle Platonist esotericism more generally. And speaking of our favorite subject, let's turn now to Plutarch's esotericism. Plutarch was what I would call a Platonist perennialist, a term we talked about back in episode 8. He held, firstly, that Plato was part of a longer tradition of philosophic wisdom going back to immemorial times, including Pythagoras. And secondly, that the philosophic truth, which of course reminds us as modern readers of imperial middle Platonism rather than anything too primordial, nevertheless, this primordial truth can be found hidden not only in the works of philosophers, but within the mysteries, the wisdom of oriental sages, and so forth. So first, philosophy. Plutarch read Plato as being an esoteric author. This was the mainstream reading by his time, and Plutarch never gives reasons why Plato wrote esoterically. It's just taken as given. But he does give us some instances of how Plato writes esoterically. Plato disguises himself. He hides his true meaning. He speaks in enigmas, or in esoteric discourses. All of this is fairly familiar territory for lovers of ancient esoteric Platonism, or for those who have listened to episode 26 of this podcast, or both. We'll return in a little bit to one example of how Plutarch uses his esoteric hermeneutic of Plato to find his own distinctly Plutarchian doctrines within Plato's works, a strategy which is also typical of esoteric Platonism, approaching the Platonic corpus and trying to find congenial doctrines within it. Now, turning toward Plutarch's approach to religion, we can start by contextualizing it as part of this widespread move in Middle Platonism to bring religion into the fold of philosophy as a source for esoteric philosophic truths, and as part of the properly philosophic way of life as well. While religion as a whole and philosophy are conceived of as separate realms, and Plutarch writes against what he considers unenlightened and superstitious religion, Demonia, the, the sort of um, what we might consider superstitious folk religion, the two realms blend together in that philosophically acceptable religion is part of being a philosopher, and philosophic wisdom is hidden esoterically within religions. In this context of dovetailing religion and philosophy, we find Plutarch appropriating the mystique of the Pythagoreans. They were philosophers, of course, but they were also an initiated order, and their secret doctrines were expressed, of course, esoterically, to be interpreted and divulged by Plutarch and his friends, but never by the masses. See episode 18 of the podcast on Pythagorean silence for more on that particular subject. Getting back to the esoteric wisdom hidden within religion more broadly, Plutarch deploys a far-ranging esoteric hermeneutic to religious materials of all sorts, but especially to the mysteries, including, as we shall see, the rites of Isis and Osiris in Egyptian religion, which he interprets in typical Greek fashion as being Egyptian mysteries. This is a hermeneutic by which everything, not only myths, but also temple architecture, ritual vestments, ritual actions, and of course oracular and other divinatory results, everything can be read as having esoteric philosophical subtext. 
The true wisdom can be found all over the place, in fact, in the world's inspired traditions, because their founders were either inspired sages and nomothetes who were concerned to keep philosophic wisdom hidden from the view of the uninitiated, or the gods themselves. It requires philosophical interpretation to unveil the truth hidden within religious structures. Plutarch is thus a Platonist perennialist of the sort we introduced in episode 8, but one with a special emphasis on religion not shared by all his colleagues. Plutarch employs the literary trope of mystic silence quite regularly, and even respects it from time to time. So what does this mean exactly? Well, as listeners will know, the rhetorical act of esotericism, as this podcast conceives it anyway, will always make reference to some act of hiding. But the act very often is accompanied by a corresponding act of revealing. So if you pick up any New Age book, you'll find inevitable prologue about how what you're about to read is an immemorial secret that has never been revealed before. And then this act of hiding will be followed by the act of revealing the entire content of the supposed secret, which often turns out not to be such a big secret after all. So Plutarch does this sort of thing, for sure. He'll refer to the secrets of the tradition and then talk about them openly. But he also does something different. He'll allude to what he considers initiatory secrets, most notably to certain cultic practices associated with the cult of Isis and Osiris, on which more in a coming episode, and then he'll refuse to say what they are. So seemingly what we see here is the initiated priest, Plutarch, actually keeping to the proper bounds of his practice and genuinely keeping certain doctrines secret. Elsewhere in in Plutarch's work, as Peter von Nufflin has argued, this act of hiding without revelation is actually used as a rhetorical strategy. So characters in a Plutarchian dialogue engaged in uh, educated philosophic banter sometimes take the option of refusing to divulge all of their proofs that might support their position, claiming that some are initiated wisdom unsuitable for being broadcast in an open conversation where some people are not initiates. Now, this is a fascinating technique for winning a dispute, right? Maybe it's a bit cognate to when governments accuse people of being terrorists, but then kind of refuse to reveal the evidence because it's a matter of national security. In both cases, the evidence is being withheld publicly, and perhaps we don't know, the claims being made are not in fact borne out by the evidence at all, but it's very effective, maybe even more effective because of the secret lying at the heart of the accusation, right? So if they can't reveal what this guy did because of national security reasons, it must have been really bad. He must have been a serious terrorist. Or in Plutarch's case, if this character in the dialogue has initiated secrets which he could reveal, but he chooses not to, they must be really good stuff, authoritative stuff from the horse's mouth. Plutarch also fully embraces the Platonist trope, drawing on Plato himself, see episodes 34 and 35, of philosophy as the true mystic initiation. So philosophy for Plutarch has graded levels within it, just like the Eleusinian Mysteries, which had a lesser and greater initiation. And these levels allow the interpretive elite that we've referred to to be able to see into the true inner meanings of myths and rituals, unlike the mere dabblers in philosophy who cannot. And this philosophy has as its highest goal the attainment of epoptic philosophy, or the direct encounter with the truth equated with epopteia, 
the viewing of the holy secrets at the culmination of the Eleusinian mysteries. So, to sum up so far, Plutarch was a Platonist perennialist of a particularly traditional religious bent, and more on his perennialism in our episode devoted to On Isis and Osiris, his great discussion of what he terms the Egyptian mysteries. He deployed the themes of silence and secrecy in his works quite liberally, more on this too in later episodes. But before we move on, we should cite one passage from the On Isis and Osiris here as a concise illustration of the style of philosophico-religious esotericism Plutarch is putting into play. Plutarch has been, in this section of the work, discussing the different ritual vestments used by the Egyptian priests in their mysteries. These vestments represent esoterically the very Platonist multiplicity of the world of senses versus the unity of the noetic realm. This hidden meaning, kind of coded into the clothing worn by the Egyptian priests, leads Plutarch to comment, quote, This is why Plato and Aristotle call this division of philosophy epoptic, since those who through reason have left behind this world of opinion, mixture, and diversity, and spring out into the primary reality of the simple and the immaterial, fully in contact with the pure truths of it, suppose that they possess the summation of philosophy as through an initiation. End of quote. So, applying our own interpretive approach to this bit of esoteric interpretation, we can see a number of things going on, and this passage emerges as pretty much a distillation of everything that Middle Platonist esotericism is about. We have the ritual vestments of the Egyptian priests as coded philosophic signs, so esoteric hermeneutics and exotic wise barbarians in one convenient package. We have the assimilation of Aristotle and Plato to a perennial philosophic tradition, which appears in many places in Plutarch, both of the great philosophers affirming that the highest level of philosophy, that is the attainment of noesis, is an initiation. And although we haven't had the space to go into Plutarch's theory of different voles of cognition in this episode, this privileging of noesis itself has elements of the esoteric within it, since it's depicted in the Middle Platonists generally as a lofty, sort of privileged state of perfect knowledge to which only philosophers and inspired sages like poets and seers have access. Um, some Middle Platonists, of course, would, would say just the philosophers and forget about the poets and seers, but for Plutarch, poets and seers are definitely there because the gods have given them access to this pure form of consciousness. We have the deployment of mystic terminology. The references to the pure truth of nous is, of course, also a nod to the ritual purification, catharsis, which was a prerequisite for mystic initiation, just as the epoptea is its culmination. So there's a kind of example of a passage bringing together many of the threads of Plutarch's esotericism in one convenient place. Now we should turn to oracles and other inspired sources of knowledge, which we mentioned earlier, because these are very important for Plutarch. As we've seen in previous episodes, there's nothing esoteric about oracles or about divination in antiquity. Nothing esoteric per se, that is. But Plutarch has an esoteric understanding of these matters. We learn in the On Isis and Osiris 
that divine providence is real. Okay, so far so good. Now, what are the sources of proof for this? Well, they include all the canonical sources of valid wisdom for a Platonist perennialist. Wise lawgivers, poets, philosophers, but also oracles and auguries and the mystic initiations and ritual offerings of both Greeks and barbarian peoples. But this truth is hidden within the auguries and oracles. The gods themselves, for Plutarch, are esotericists. They have revealed truths to humanities, but they don't want to reveal them to just anyone for various reasons. Now, this episode is threatening to be a very long episode indeed, so we shall leave Plutarch's esotericism there for now. And in the next two episodes, we'll have ample room to fill in the details, and listeners can check out the passages we've been referring to in the works cited section of the episode notes to this episode, where we give chapter and verse, making it pretty easy to go back to Plutarch and check out exactly what he's saying in the context of it. But before we go, we should mention a curious doctrine of Plutarch's which would go on to have an intermittent and very interesting presence in Western esotericism. And this is the doctrine of the evil soul, an idea which also affords us the opportunity to return, as promised, to Plutarch's esoteric reading of Plato in action. So, a problem for philosophers and for monotheist religions has always been the problem of evil. If God or the primary realities are fundamentally good, and the created world is thus good, for why would a good God create an evil world? doesn't make any sense. Then why is there evil at all? Why is the world not perfectly good? Many, many answers have been given to this question by different people, and one of the places people looked for possible answers in antiquity was the creation myth in Plato's Timaeus. In the Timaeus, listeners will recall, the universe is made by the divine demiurge, or craftsman. Now, this is not a creation ex nihilo from nothing. The demiurge sort of finds his materials lying around. So the forms already exist, in Plato's account, or at least he doesn't give an account of how they came to exist, they're just there. They act as a sort of blueprint for the Demiurge to base his work of creation on. As does a mysterious thing called the receptacle, which probably was a concept of space in Plato's thought, but which later Platonists, under the influence of Aristotle's idea of hule, or matter, interpreted as a reference to matter. So the idea is some kind of undifferentiated a canvas on which the Demiurge is going to write, a kind of blank slate, but it's a material substrate for the whole universe. There was also this reality called soul, psyche, which listeners will recall, the Demiurge cut into strips and then fashioned the heavens out of the strips. So, assuming that the Demiurge is a good god, interpreters of the Timaeus had three possible candidates for the source of evil. The forms, the receptacle, or matter in later readings, or soul. Other works of Plato are too insistent on the eternity, perfection, and goodness of the forms for them to have been a source of evil. So we don't know of anyone in antiquity who says the forms are why there is evil. This leaves the receptacle, later read as matter, or soul. Now most Platonists would opt for matter. Indeed, in Plotinus, we will see matter demoted to a kind of hungry void lurking in the bowels of reality and corrupting everything it touches. But Plutarch took another tack. He posited two primary universal souls, a good soul and an evil soul. 
It's the evil soul which causes all the badness we see around us. The created world is as perfect as possible, taking into account that its original materials, the universal soul stuff, was imperfect from the beginning. Plutarch associates this evil soul with the dyad of Platonic oral tradition. Now, Plutarch seems to have been unique in this particular reading of Plato, unique, that is, among philosophic Platonists. But as we shall see later, many Gnostics and other fascinating figures like the Islamic doctor and philosopher Abu Bakr al-Razi, known in Latin as Raziz, also held a variation of this curious theory that a recalcitrant or even downright evil world soul is the cause of all our misery. But that is all in the future. Right now, in the first century, Plutarch needs to do some serious interpretive work if he's going to get away with legitimizing this reading of Plato. Luckily, he has esoteric hermeneutics. Plato, we are told in chapter 48 of On Isis and Osiris by Plutarch, wrote openly of his doctrine of the two world souls in his mature work, The Laws. And indeed, if we look at The Laws, it is possible to interpret the work as having a teaching of at least two sort of universal souls which move the cosmos. So Plutarch is like, there it is, spoken openly in Plato in his mature days. But in his earlier works, he spoke of principles like the same and the different. This is a reference to the Timaeus, where the Demiurge makes two heavenly rings, which are offset from one another, the circles of the same and the different. This, of course, for Plutarch, is an esoteric reference to the two souls, the good and the evil. So once the interpretive key is found, in this case, two souls in Plato, one good and one bad, esoteric hermeneutics can be used to find the key doctrine throughout the Platonic corpus. So that's Plutarch's esoteric reading of Plato in action, and this seems a fittingly esoteric note on which to end this introduction to the great man. It remains only to close this episode by alluding to Plutarch's death. It's reported in Artemidorus's Onero Critica, our only surviving ancient manual on dream divination, which we shall of course be covering in the podcast. It's reported that Plutarch died shortly after having dreamt of ascending into heaven led by Hermes, the traditional psychopomp or leader of souls in Greek mythology. More on the theme of heavenly ascent in Plutarch in a coming episode. And until then, stay esoteric. <laughs>